In July 2020, tens of thousands of passionate and committed people from around the globe will convene in San Francisco and Oakland at the 23rd International AIDS Conference. This gathering among the world's largest conferences will happen during a critical year when global goals for the fight against HIV-AIDS come due. In 2020, the conference comes back to sacred ground in the Bay Area, a front line in the fight against HIV after 30 years. In this podcast, we'll be talking to a diversity of inspiring guests. They have been and remain at the very forefront of the ongoing fight against HIV-AIDS, both at home and abroad. There's stigma in many of our challenges from a global health perspective. I, I have said, and I mean it with every bone in my body, that there's no place for stigma in public health. We're joined today by Dr. Robert Redfield, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Since taking the helm at CDC, Dr. Redfield has spearheaded the U.S. initiative to end HIV by 2030, which grew out of President Trump's State of the Union address in early February. I'm Andrew Schwartz. I'm Steve Morrison. And I'm Sarah Allender. This is AIDS 2020. Your main catchphrase, Dr. Redfield, is pursue the possible. And when it comes to HIV AIDS, and you've said that it's possible to end the disease in the United States within three to seven years. Can you tell us about that? Well, I do think it's important to, to uh, see the possible. Uh, you know, I'm always uh, reflective of uh, John Kennedy's speech, Man on the Moon. You know, I don't think all the science was in the bag when he made the speech that he was going to put a man on the moon before the end of the uh, decade, and yet it happened. So I do think it's important to see the possible and then lead a nation to act. Uh, clearly, we have all the scientific tools we need to bring an end to HIV in in our nation. Uh, and I think it's important when you have the science, you don't leave it on the shelf, you, you operationalize it. Many people saw this as an aspirational goal. Uh, I, I want to say it's not aspirational. It's a very pragmatic goal. We have the ability now to diagnose individuals and get them in treatment and get them so they're virally suppressed and with uh, medications that easy, that's easy to take and, and it's not toxic. And that viral suppression actually also has an added benefit of allowing that individual no longer to be able to transmit the virus. In addition, we have new uh, ways to prevent HIV acquisition if you are at risk. Pre-exposure prophylaxis using several of the medicines that were developed initially for treatment. And we now have strong scientific evidence that syringe programs work. And so it's really just putting those things into action. I think the thing that allowed people to see that this was now the time, the time is now to accomplish this, is when we looked at the new HIV infections that were being diagnosed in our nation, we sort of hit a plateau, about 38, 40,000 new infections per year. And I asked CDC to show me where those infections were, and they gave me maps showing new infection rates per 100,000 population, as many epidemiologists do, and it looked like a blur. And I said, well, could you go back and do the map for me and just plot every new infection? Not per 100,000, just where are the 38, 40,000 infections? And they did. And when they did, the map uh, was really one of those, uh, like an epiphany moment. We saw that actually 50% of the infections occurred in only 48 jurisdictions. And then Washington, D.C. and San Juan, Puerto Rico. Most of them in the South. I mean, many of them in the South, mostly in the South. And if I could show you the map, you'd go, your head would go back. And when people saw that map, there's more than 3,000 jurisdictions that we, if we could just concentrate 
our initial efforts on those 50 jurisdictions that we could really begin to make headway on this. Now, the other thing that we did, because of the issue about the South, 52% of uh, the cases of HIV in our nation are in the South, we, asked, we did another exercise where I asked them to redo the analysis, but only look at new infections in areas, jurisdictions that would meet criteria to be defined as rural. Because the 48 jurisdictions in D.C. and San Juan were all urban. And I knew some of the challenges were going to be different challenges in rural. And we did that. And we found that they really lined up in five, uh, seven states. And uh, those states had one thing in common. They were all in the south. And so we then included those states. And this is the initial target where we're going to really uh, put a sustained effort uh, not to business as usual, not to control, but to go on an effort now to bring an end to HIV. Starting in those uh, 57 jurisdictions, that's the 50 jurisdictions in seven states, and then we'll add other parts of the nation as we go Can on. Can you say a little bit about the efforts? You've, you've gone to at least 35 of these jurisdictions to talk to locally elected leaders, talk to members of the community of those living with HIV and those who are at high risk. Uh, you've been jawboning elected officials, governors, and legislatures to change laws and, and the environment to make it possible for this to move ahead, particularly around things like syringe exchange. Can you say a bit about that? Well, I think it's important. I always say CDC is science-based, data-driven. Uh, uh, that's what we are. Uh, and when you look at what are the evidence-based data we have for prevention strategies that work, clearly pre-exposure prophylaxis works. Um, but the truth is, so do safe syringe programs. Um, and uh, it really can have a significant impact on preventing uh, expansion of HIV, as we saw in Scott County, where at the end of that day, 5% of the community was HIV infected. This was the rural county R in Indiana rural where county you had in Indiana. outbreak. Uh, outbreak. And by the time it was over... Uh, 5% of the community was HIV infected. It was all driven by injection drug using and really the lack of availability of uh, safe syringe programs. I will tell you also one of the things that's important to me and I think helps in people beginning to be uh, open to reconsidering safe syringe programs in their jurisdictions. Ultimately, this is a jurisdictional decision. We can just share the data. But some of the data that was most compelling also to me was if you go to a safe syringe program, do you know you're about three to five times more likely to go into treatment for your addiction? Is that right? And the most important public health crisis this nation has right now is addiction to basically opioids and, and drug use disorder, amphetamines and cocaine. And if I want to get people into treatment for addiction. Right. And I think it really has resonated. I was very proud that Governor Kemp signed the expansion. Governor of Georgia. Uh, Governor of Georgia. And we did also meet with the governor of Florida, uh, DeSantis, and he also uh, agreed. Uh, and we've had discussions with uh, a number of the southern state leaders. There's many of them are on a every other year uh, legislative cycle. But I'm pretty confident that people are going to look at the data, not have opinions, just look at the data and determine uh, how that data can be used to help help our nation succeed in the mission of bringing an, an so, end to the HIV. So you're, you're not treating these two public health problems in silos? Not at all. I mean, I think if you look at one of the great threats uh, to success of the current HIV initiative, we have, we have I think, really a couple threats. Um, 
One of them is the significant substance use disorder uh, outbreak that we have in this nation. Not just opioids, you know, but a cocaine, not just cocaine, but amphetamines. And we now have 12 states that the leading cause of overdose death is no longer opioids, it's now amphetamines. So now you could argue those amphetamines are tainted with the synthetic opioids, so you might go back and say, you know, it's still an opioid. But amphetamine addiction is something we don't have a lot of medical countermeasures for. The other threat that I saw that I didn't appreciate before I went out, and it's important to emphasize, you know, I, I didn't go out of this with blinders on. I spent over 20 years practicing medicine in Baltimore. Okay, where you've I, seen it all. I've seen it. I've seen it. Okay, uh, and I've seen the interrelationship between substance abuse and HIV and mental illness and HIV in a in an area where many people uh, had resource limitations to healthcare. So I understand it. But I can tell you one thing I learned by going to the thirty, uh, interacting with the thirty-five different jurisdictions, is they're not all the same. You've, this is why this initiative is a jurisdictional initiative. It's not a state initiative. It's a jurisdictional. The awards are going to go to the jurisdictions for them to come up with their plan because how they're going to get uh, HIV so there's no new diagnosis in their community is going to be different by different jurisdictions. But one thing I did see as a common theme, particularly in San Francisco and Oakland and Houston and Los Angeles, is the true recognition that homelessness is actually a medical condition. Right. And that some of these jurisdictions are gonna to have to develop effective, disruptively innovative strategies to deal effectively with homelessness in order for them to meet this goal. So when I look at some of the, the challenges, the challenges is, are really not the science, the science is done. The challenge is first to get the jurisdictions to one, believe that it's possible to win. Yeah. And we can do this. Second thing, to give them the courage to think differently, be disruptively innovative. If they continue to do everything exactly the way they're doing it, then I don't think they're going to change the answer. And to enter a dialogue where people can actually look at data, and we can, once the data gets to a certain point, we can look at it and let the opinions go to the side and begin to operationalize the data. And really see how all these patterns are interrelated. And see how they're interrelated. And just keep people engaged uh, to the goal line, which is to re reduce new HIV diagnosis in this nation by 75% in five years. That's a bold goal. It is. We were interviewing people and filming in Memphis, in rural Arkansas, in Oakland, in San Francisco. A couple of things that came out of that that I'd like you to speak to. One is just the enduring power of stigma uh, in, in America. And I was quite shocked at the power of this, particularly in the interviews in Memphis and Arkansas. The other is the vitally important role of the faith community. Can you just, you're, you have a strong faith in your life, uh, and you've grappled with stigma in many settings, and you've been very vocal about stigma as the prime enemy of public health. Can you say a bit more about this strategy and how do we address stigma? How, how do we get the faith community on board? Well, I think this is a really important point. I, I have said, and I mean it with every bone in my body, that there's no place for stigma in public health. Uh, and we have it in many different diseases. It's not unique to HIV, obesity, mental illness, you know, drug use disorder, uh, there's stigma in many of our challenges from a global health perspective. And you have sort of two sides to stigma. One's external, one's internal. And we have to work on both. 
when you mean internal, which is individuals internalizing the stigma and living that way. Yeah, and, and in a way, stigmatizing themselves. You know, I'm obese, or I'm an addict, or I'm, in this case, and uh, I have HIV, or I have a different sexual orientation than my mom and dad. Uh, this, there's no place for this. And, you know, we have to really help people to have pride and joy in who they are. I think you know, I've said this before, that one of my six children uh, almost died from contaminated cocaine with fentanyl. Uh, And uh, when he finally came to us, it was a miracle in my view to ask for help and to go into recovery, he was, was distraught and crying and he was ashamed of who he was. And my my wife and I said, you know, you should never be ashamed of who you are. You're a wonderful human being. You have a medical condition. You have a chronic relapsing medical condition. We need to get you taken care of. But that's not who you are. That's right. You don't get defined by that. Well, I think we have to do the same thing, whether it's in people who define themselves sometimes by their mental illness or mental health conditions. People define themselves whether obese or not. People can define themselves uh, whether they have HIV or not. Some people feel they're being defined by other people because they, the, their family may not embrace their gender or sexual orientation. We, this is where the faith community should, if anybody should be leading, leading the idea that we don't stigmatize, that we embrace uh, the human dignity of each person with joy and who they are. You know, it's not for us to tell that individual who they are. It's for us to tell us who we are, me to tell me who I am. But we should embrace with joy. And I think this is an area that unfortunately, frequently, the faith community has gotten viewed as a vehicle for stigma, particularly in the rural South. And and this is, I think, the number one area in public health that they could contribute is become the ve- the vehicle, the instrument, the the uh, turning point uh, to allow people to rediscover the joy in who they are, no matter what medical condition they may have, no matter what gender they are, maybe what sexual orientation they have. Um, uh, so I do think this is really important. I'm confident we're going to get there. I think there's a softening. The reason I came back to internal, I think the one that needs more work, when I saw the CDC's report uh, last year, earlier this year, on suicide risk and gestures, and when I saw such an accelerated risk among men who have sex with men, I'm saying to myself, I want these men to feel joy in who they are. You know, so I am still worried that we haven't we haven't undone all the damage that society has done to allow people to get initially externally stigmatized. So then they then they sort of internally reinforce that. I want them internally celebrate who they are. Thank you. I want to use some of our the balance of our time to talk about the International AIDS Conference. Your engagement with this conference goes all the way back to Atlanta in the mid '80s, and you've seen all of these different major moments, as you've called them, of awakenings. Tell us a little bit about the history of the. What were those major awakenings, uh, starting with Atlanta, Stockholm, Durban? Yeah, I think uh, my first experience was the Atlanta conference, and I I actually had a number of papers at that first conference, and I remember they weren't all well received, um, uh, but I think they helped provide part of the awakening. 
One of them was a paper showing transmission between men and women and women and men. One of them was showing the importance of early diagnosis at a time when there was a lot of controversy. And one of them, which was not, which the hardest one was I had developed a staging system that I had been evaluating patients in the armed forces. And if you look critically at people over the 18 months to two year period, I showed that from an immunological point of view that over 90% were actually getting sicker. And this was in a time when people thought 5% of people may develop AIDS. But it was a real awakening that first conference in in in, in What Atlanta. was it like? What were the, what were the, what was the I, I atmosphere think, like? I think it was, you know, we were surrounded by a smaller group of individuals that had become engaged in in HIV. It wasn't a huge conference, you know. It was probably done in a, a standard university auditorium type. And uh, but there were people there that were new. Life magazine was there. Some of the Newsweek magazine was there. Some of the media was starting to get interested. What is this AIDS thing? And I really did think it began and to open the doors that this was not just a medical curiosity. This was really a very serious new introduction of a pathogen into the humans, and we needed it. It was going to change the world. I mean, there's no question about it. And, uh, and in a sense, the race was on to begin to get more scientific firepower engaged in this. And then I mentioned to you the second conference that really excited me was probably the 88 Stockholm Conference, which I think was the best HIV science conference that I've ever been to. And so now you're, you're, you're forward a couple more years, and you all of a sudden see the, the power of science now getting engaged in a meaningful way uh, to try to confront HIV infection and use that power to begin to develop um, meaningful solutions. And then you fast forward to 96 and you see Vancouver with the announcement of the protease inhibitors and the therapy now that seemed to have sustained improvement in a, a number of individuals. You know, and then as you as you go forward after that, I really think the next one was Durban, where I think uh, this is a two thousand. Yeah, and Durban in two thousand, it's when my awakening came to the challenge of HIV in Africa. I had been invited by the president of Botswana and the vice president of Malawi to go visit their countries and see firsthand what HIV was doing to their nations, and it was probably the most unsettling trip I've ever had in my life. You mentioned I am a faith-driven individual. I just think it wasn't part of God's plan to have uh, people in the United States now start living longer and longer and longer with AIDS and people in sub-Saharan Africa living shorter and shorter and shorter. And there need to be a... Someone had to figure out how to get these advancements of science more equitably distributed. And so what a great... What a great uh, thing it was when President Bush provided that leadership and uh, the Global Fund. Uh, and, you know, as you know now, we have really over 25 million people on treatment. So, But I think uh, the Durban meeting was really important because it was at a time when the general consensus in the world was therapeutics weren't really an option for sub-Saharan Africa. They didn't have the healthcare infrastructure it just wasn't going to work. And this is where President Bush really, you know, led. Broke, broke the code. Yeah, he led what I said about seeing the possible. He saw the possible, 
And then he led the nation in the world to act and developed the PEPFAR program and rapidly showed that actually the truth is, and I was involved in PEPFAR for many years and was one of the original Track 1 recipients in 11 countries. We actually put over 700,000 people into care and treatment. I can tell you right here as I sit here today, I was more successful in getting people virally suppressed in sub-Saharan Africa than I was in Baltimore. And all of the myths that we had that was going to be too complicated was not true. It was just a question of of operationalizing and getting it done. So I think that you, you had the awakening in Atlanta, in a sense. Uh, you had the awakening in Stockholm of the power and science, and science is going to get a handle on this. You had the awakening in Vancouver of the hope that actually this wasn't going to be a fatal disease. We're going to we're going to start getting this to be a very treatable disease. And then you had the awakening in Durban which was that we got to bring the whole world along with us. You know, we're not going to leave Africa behind. And finally, as you look at in, in San Francisco and Oakland, my hope is that the awakening is that our goal to bring an end to the AIDS epidemic in America is going to happen. We're going to get it done. So that's the next big thing. We're going to get it done. We're going to get it done in this nation, and we're going to stay the course to allow these African countries, one country at a time, obtain epidemic control. So once we get it done here, we can really transfer our knowledge of mapping and data and so on and so forth to these countries in Africa. To the countries in Africa, but also other countries around the world to realize this is a doable thing. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's very, it's very easy for people to sit back and say, and I'm doing the best I can do. Right. Okay. I mean, you know, you know, this isn't this isn't doable. It's aspirational. You can you can be aspirational. But it's not doable. But when you when you when you reduce it and accomplish it, all right. And I think you're going to see that already. We're going to see it before we see it in America. We're going to see it in some of these African countries. I mean, Ambassador Burks is moving quickly. I think we will see af- epidemic control established in uh, some of these African countries. And, you know, we're going for not just epidemic control, we're going to eliminate the epidemic in our nation, which is to get our new case rate down less than one in 100,000 and then go from there. So, um, yeah, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, I think you're right when I use the term, it's just a series of awakenings. You know, the awakening I'm hoping for Oakland and San Francisco is the awakening that, yes, we're going to do this. The time is now, and let's get it done. Dr. Redfield, thank you so much for being with us today. Yep, thank you. Thank you for listening to AIDS 2020. If you want to find out more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV-AIDS, go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page. For more discussions on global health issues, check out Take As Directed, a CSIS podcast that features deep dive interviews with leaders in the global health policy space. Listen and subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.